Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, you're listening to Wish We Knew What to Say with me, Pragya Agarwal. How do you talk to your child about discrimination, privilege, power, race, and racism? This is a podcast about talking with children about race covering all ages from toddler to teen. In each episode, I meet with a parent, carer or educator to hear their experiences of having these vital conversations. Hello, today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined with Anna Winger. Anna Winger is a Berlin-based American writer-producer whose mini-series, Unorthodox, made its debut on Netflix early this year. And if you haven't watched it, you're in for such a treat. It's absolutely fantastic. I can't stop thinking about it. The show is inspired by Deborah Feldman's 2012 memoir, Unorthodox, The Scandalous Rejection of My Hasidic Roots. Anna's previous credits include the hit Amazon series Deutschland 83 and its follow-ups Deutschland 86 and Deutschland 89. Unorthodox, as I said, dives deep deep into the Hasidic Jewish culture and history. And um, Anna said that she wanted to produce something that spoke to the experience of being Jewish in Germany. Anna previously lived in New York, but met her husband in Chile, and they moved together to Berlin in 2002 and have two daughters. Um, And so welcome, Anna. I'm so, as I said, I'm so absolutely delighted to have you here. Thank you for having me. So you have two children. Could you tell us a little bit more about your family, please? I have two daughters, or we have two daughters. Uh, One is 11 now and one is 16. And before we started recording, um, we were talking briefly about Anna's childhood and her upbringing. Uh, Maybe tell us a little bit more about your upbringing, Anna. Well, I guess (laughs) my parents... My mother is British and my father is American, and they met in Nigeria in the 60s because they're both anthropologists, um, and they specialize in child development and comparative child development around the world. So they were doing research in many places with their students. Um, So as a child, I lived in East Africa, um, in Kenya, uh, near the Tanzania border. Um, And I also went to, I started primary school there. And um, so, and then later we moved to Mexico. So that I had, which has, you know, seems totally different and was totally different, but I was, because of my parents' work, immersed uh, in in very different cultures than my own. So that was, I think, a 
big influence on who I am as a person. So, yes, I mean, you talked a little bit about earlier about how when you were in Kenya, Kenya, you went to a, a school which was just a local primary school and um, you were in fact one of the minorities there and you grew up with uh, black and brown children, predominantly black. And that has kind of shaped um, how you see people. And I wonder what you think about how growing up in a diverse multicultural society can shape our, our children's worldviews. Well, you know, as an American, I mean, America is a multicultural society, but it is unfortunately still quite segregated uh, by by race and also economics. Um, so I think it's also a choice how you how you raise your children. I mean, I think in my parents' case, they felt you know that I should go to school where we lived, and and so that was the school and. It was less sort of a grand social experiment and more just it made sense. But I do think that having been the minority, part of the minority, which is possibly a rare, rarer experience for white people, Western white people, let's say from the global north, I have had the experience of being, well, I was the only white person in my in my primary school. I think, I think it's a well, necessary experience. I mean, it's, I, I don't want to overstate it because, you know, all the privilege attendant with being a white person in post-colonial Africa existed as well. And I, it's not, I mean, you know, I think it's, these things are very complex, but yes, it was, it, it was just the only world that I knew was one in which, um, there were not a lot of white people around me. So that was, I, and I do remember moving to the United States, finding it surprising how separated everything was because it just wasn't, we had a much more immersive experience as children, my brother and I. And then, um, and then again in Mexico is the same. I mean, we moved to Mexico and I was a teenager and uh, my early teenage life and I just went to Mexican school. So, and I also, by the way, didn't speak Spanish. I mean, in Kenya, it was slightly different because people spoke English, but it, in, in Mexico, they were like, oh, well, she'll learn Spanish. <laughs> I mean, they, my parents definitely believed in the idea of sort of the immersive cultural experience. They themselves come from different, very different backgrounds. And um, so I think... It is. I think it's. I mean, yes. My my story is unique, but I also think that in the worlds that we live in, in you know, global cities in the north, it also would be possible to make different choices. I think people have a tendency just not to pursue that kind of uh, diversity of experience in their daily lives. And I'm by by people. I'm talking about white people. Oh, thank you for sharing that. And I really love the, the fact that you talk about choice, about the actively making a choice to to maybe choose a certain path for ourselves, for our children, to choose a certain way of life. And I think sometimes we choose paths that are more comfortable than others rather than things that we think are going to be uncomfortable, at, at least to start off with, or, or maybe inconvenient, or maybe cause us a little bit of discomfort or take us out outside a comfort zone. So I think that's really, really interesting. I was just reading some of your interviews from the past and you you talk about um, how important it is to know our history 
and how we are losing track of our past. And I, if I look at or think about the programs that you make or, or what you've written about, you also draw so much on, on our past and history and our, our kind of rituals and, our, and all those kind of traditions. And I wonder how important it is for us to know an unfiltered version of the past and history, how important it is for you as a parent to bring this out for your children as well. Well, I think it's very important. And again, as an American, you know, a country that tends to push forward into the future without dealing with the past, also England, frankly, um, I think, or let's say we tend to emphasize the parts we like or that are heroic about our past and sort of turn away from the from the parts that are, that are really not heroic. Um, I think it's very important. And, you know, I'm interested in working with historical material as a metaphor for the present, you know, it's not about the history. You're always writing about the present when you're writing about the past, because you're always writing it now. And, and the, there's this way in which like the contemporary concerns dovetail with, with the way the filter through which you're seeing the past. And um, I'm interested, you know, there's that Mark Twain quote that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And I'm interested in the sort of cyclical nature of, you know, crimes of history and, and the things that we're not, that we're sweeping under the rug and how they come back to haunt us. Um, certainly when I was working on the eighties, which is a period of time I remember, but I was very young. Um, I was interested in all the connections between cultural events, political events that had ha started in the eighties that kind of found their, this arc to the present. And we're kind of still from first of all, Cold War politics and the East-West relationship, but also in terms of, for example, uh, gay politics, there were, there were, you know, and how sort of the politics around gay marriage had their roots in the, the movement again, uh, to expose AIDS and, and to find a cure for AIDS. So it was, I think there were a lot of things that I was always looking for, the connections between our contemporary experience and and that period of time that I was writing about, and you know, with Unorthodox, which is funnily, of course, it's a it's a contemporary show, but it was a little bit like a, a costume drama because it it doesn't take place in the past, but it takes place among people who are living as if in the past. So there's this the Hasidic community, the Satmar community in Williamsburg, they live in modern New York as if in a shtetl from you know Czarist Russia it's it's a there's a time warp aspect to it that's also really interesting and the the roots of that that contemporary society are really a reaction to the holocaust because it was founded uh primarily by holocaust survivors and you know they're they're kind of protecting themselves from this trauma and so there's a, a cycle of inherited trauma in that story which um is is that part of it is historical so you know, I, yeah, I'm interested in how we bring forward, you know, whether it's trauma, I suppose there's also positive things uh, from the past into our contemporary existence. Yeah, I, I really thought that about, um, about Orthodox, about how um, by holding on sometimes to a tradition and history and trying to 
this this maintained this conflict between the modern and the tradition can be so acute sometimes and acutely felt by some more than others but i was reading something about berlin just a germany in general and about historical education there and um i i think much of its history is of course overshadowed by the holocaust and it's been shaped by that but mm-hmm. i read a lot about how in in focusing so much on the holocaust sometimes its colonial past has been overlooked or its role in the slavery movement has been overlooked um have you found that with your children's education historical education there in germany so my children go to a german american school and um it is very half and half it's bilingual and they learn both german and american history um and i think they have quite progressive teachers and they are they deal with the holocaust for example from every angle um they talk about it from when they're quite young actually there's no sweeping that under the rug that's something that i think we all can learn from i think the question of germany's colonial past has only recently started to come to the surface simply because i suppose they felt like their recent history was so atrocious that they hadn't really quite gotten to that um there's just so much to teach about about the 20th century and you know the stories of namibia and uh, you know, the other the colonial stuff which i mean people know it but it's not um discussed i don't think it's hidden so much as that it does they don't get to it you know it's funny i was very surprised when we started making deutschland how little they got to the cold war in in this education system so the holocaust takes up World War II, all of it, to, and, and World War One, by the way, which was also started by the Germans. Um, they have a lot of 20th century history to unpack uh, and to impress upon young people. So they don't get to a lot of things. But I would say like in the museums now and in public discourse, there's much more of a conversation about uh, the colonial story here. You know, I think they always felt like, well, they have less of a colonial story than than the other European um nations which is also true but it doesn't make it less atrocious so um yeah so i think that that that's that's my feeling about it but certainly my kids teachers are quite progressive and there's a lot of discussion of i mean one thing that's really striking about germany for me as an american and as a brit you know I'm, i have dual nationality um is just that it's a, it's a country that because you know it's had how do I put this correctly? It's like they've had, they've rebooted this society and this political system at least four times in the past hundred years. Right. So they, as a result, there's kind of a, a willingness to kind of, to a, a determination to, towards self-improvement in the political system that I think we really do not have in Britain or in America. You know, we've had the same systems. I mean, in, in Britain at infinitum. And then, you know, how, I don't know, a thousand years, how long has it been the same way? And, and in America, since, since the, right, the declaration of independence, we haven't changed very much. So it's, we don't ever reconsider how we run things. Um, and here, because, you know, they had a lot more sort of calamity on German soil, they have been forced into a reconsideration of their political system, which trickles down into the education system. I feel like my my children feel quite proud of that aspect of being German, of the idea that it's a better society. It's not perfect, but there's a 
that it's being improved all the time. There's a sort of collective sense of how can we be more humane? How can we make this more efficient? How can we um, take care of our own? And how can we excavate our own history in order to improve our future? And I think that's something we can all learn from Germany. It's it's ironic, isn't it? That there's, I don't think anybody, certainly no one in the you know Jewish world that I come from, I don't think people ever thought they'd be saying things like that, but it is true that when you're living in a successful social democracy that's also a successful capitalist country, you you see that things are possible, you know, taking care of the for the collective welfare of the society and being able to, you know, build business and this sort of thing, that those two things can go hand in hand. You see that it's possible in a way that uh, in the United States I think people have lost uh, the vision for that. Yeah, I, I do think that in Britain and um, the U.S. as well, I think there is, uh, in the recent past, at least recently, there has been this whole revoking of the nostalgia or a kind of a nationalistic identity going back to the good old days in a way. And I suppose with Germany's checkered past, they are trying, they're more self-reflective of what things went wrong in the past. So they're not harking back to the good old days and actually thinking of moving forward. And I, I, I suppose that's really really interesting in, in how we address the ills of the past really actively rather than passively letting them go or not even thinking about them. Um, how was um, Black Lives Matter? Because it was such a, it, it was the moment where people were first, for the first time, really engaging in conversations about race. But still, at least in Britain, there was this whole notion that it happened, it was something that happened elsewhere, and it wasn't something that happened here. Um, how did you find or how you, did your children find that in Germany? Well, I think that, of course, the majority of Germans probably felt that this was something barbaric that was happening in the United States. I think many Germans of a more progressive persuasion would say that they're colorblind, which I think is a very complicated thing because they mean to say that they don't care. They don't, they're, they're not racist. However, when they say things like that, it discounts the experiences of people of color in a way that can be really offensive. So that that's that's something I think that in their public discourse they're grappling with right now. I think that uh, people who are, let's say black Germans uh, who call themselves Afro-Deutsch, that I think uh, they've been much more outspoken this year than in the time that I've lived here. There's been a lot of sort of pushing this conversation to the surface and saying, you know, we have these problems here too, and we need to acknowledge that, we need to process them, we wanna, um, discuss it openly and see how it can be improved. So, you know, there are fewer people who are black, of course, in Germany than there are in the United States. In the United States is a different issue. However, there are issues here as well around, for sure, around um, racism and, and institutional bias. And um, yeah, I'm glad to see that they're finally being discussed. Actually, at our school, um, we've just started a, a racism anti-racism training project for with parents and we it's a series of exercises that we're doing um i participated in one workshop now and it's it's a lot of things have come up even at our school which is quite multicultural uh especially because you know americans come from every possible background so it's a german american school and there's many kids who are i don't know half Indian and half German or half, um, you know, American, black and half Polish. It's, it's a crazy mixture of everything, which is great. Um, but in these workshops, definitely 
there have been serious issues coming up even at our school um, around, you know, the a bias against, um, there was a, a big discussion in, in the workshop I was in about that there was, that, that more um, Black boys had been left behind at the school than any other kind of student. And that was something that I had never, no one had, had located that specifically. I, but when, when the woman said it in the workshop, I realized it was something that had been, I could think of two kids, um, you know, throughout the time that I've been a parent there, where that was indeed the case that they had stayed back, two different boys who had stayed back. And, and the mother raised the question of like, why is this happening and and what what is the school not doing? What is the school doing wrong? And what is the school not doing right? Um, and so we got in a really in depth discussion of that. So I feel really um, excited in a way that the school is is sort of diving into this head on. And by the way, I also I'm you know I'm on all the I receive all the emails from the schools that I went to in the United States, including the boarding school that I went to in high school, and um, they are also really taking it on like. They've started, and they're not only taking on how they deal with things now, but they have organized a board to excavate their own history and the institutional racism at the school. And so I, I feel excited that that's happening as well. Thank you for sharing all that. It's been such a scintillating conversation. We're just going to take a short break and come back very soon. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, 
Welcome back. Today, um, I'm speaking with Anna Winger, and um, it's been a really fascinating conversation so far. Anna is based in Germany, and she's got two daughters, uh, 11 and 16 year old. And I'm speaking with her about about the kind of racism or racial prejudice or discrimination that uh, exists in the world, her upbringing, and how she's raising her children to be more race conscious as well. And I find Anna's background really fascinating. Uh, her childhood and upbringing, um, and I wonder that um, because you were brought up in this way, which is just the norm, your parents had this philosophy of kind of an immersive experience or immersive childhood. When you moved to Germany and you had your own children, did you think that talking about race or racism was it a conversation that had had to happen actively? Or again, how, how did you bring this up with your children? I think it's always been important to talk about. I, I think I don't think there's ever been a time when we didn't talk about it. But, you know, they live in a, in a, it sounds weird because they live in Germany, but they live in a very integrated, their their friends are a really wide range of people. So they have, I, I mean, I feel grateful that they live in, starting with nursery school. It, I mean, it sounds strange because actually in the United States and Britain are much more segregated by race. And maybe because we're living in Berlin and it's an immigrant city, uh, there's, you know, this is a place that, you know, 30 years ago began with like began again, right? So it's a place that's kind of been rebuilt by our generation of people who are not necessarily German. Lots of people kind of came to Berlin to reinvent themselves and be part of rebuilding the city. So there's a really wide range of people who live here. And, um, you know, they've always gone to state school. The German American school is a state school. It's it's left over from the Marshall Plan. So there is there is an egalitarian aspect also to the whole process of nursery school, which is free, and then state school state school system, which is very good. And so there's um because it, I mean, I suppose part of this is economic, right? It it is not defined by money. I think schools in America and Britain tend to be defined by whether or not you pay for them. And um, that is not the case in my kids' education. It's like, that's not the barrier. Money is not the barrier to entry. So there's just all kinds of people in the schools. And as a result, um, they have a very diverse group of, of friends, which is amazing. And by the way, at our school, because it's an American school too, it's not just diverse in terms of like, progressive uh ideas and like integration it's also more a more diverse version of the united states than they would experience if we still lived in new york because um there's also very conservative people at our school for example there's a lot of evangelical christian missionaries um who have kids who become friends with with my kids and who let's say voted for trump and so forth so we, I feel that through, as a parent at this school, I come into contact with Americans I wouldn't know otherwise. So that's also, I mean, that's a mixed bag, of course, but I, but I also think it's given how polarized the United States is, I feel grateful that we have this kind of contact in, in this environment, because while I might not agree with them, I, I still think it's better to know some people who don't agree with me because the bubble that I come from in America, everybody agrees politically. So I think that um, it's it's a strange, it's it's diverse in lots of ways. <laughs> this this situation, this expat life, and um, 
in particular here in Berlin? And um, in terms of identity, um, I, your your children identify as German. I mean, they've they've got this unique heritage. So, um, well, they identify as lots of things, but they I would say they feel American. They feel Jewish. They feel German for sure. They feel um, also to some degree British. I mean, my mother is a very dominant personality. So they they ha- I think they. F- they recognize that they are a mixture of things. And that's really interesting because I think I've always been really kind of conscious of how do we make sure our children are comfortable with these multiple identities and not just conforming to one label or feeling the pressure to conform to one side more than others, you know. So um, I'm just really interested to hear your experience of how do you make sure that your children are so secure in their identities? You know, it's interesting that you say that because last night at dinner, I asked my elder daughter, who's 16, I asked her, do you think in the future that everybody will be sort of a poly hyphenate? Like, does it, when you judge from your friendship circle, does it feel to you that people are all kind of mixed in different ways? And she said, yeah, of course. Like, why would anybody, you know, marry someone or have babies with somebody just like themselves? as if it was ridiculous. And I'm thinking, yeah, well, you realize that like until, I don't know, 50 years ago, nobody ever married somebody who, or had a baby with somebody not like themselves, unless it was, you know, a mistake or something or or highly risky. And, um, you know, in her world, all of her friends, you know, of her best friends, like one is half Afghani German and half Armenian American. One is half Indian from Kerala, half German. One is, um, I mean, the mixture of people like one is uh, her mother is from Lesotho, her father is German. They met at Cambridge in in London, in, in the UK. So they're sort of British. <laughs> um, the mixture of people that she is friends with, if you really, but if they would just say that they're all German, so that you know, and they and they very loosely go back and forth between speaking English and German. I think part of it is also the language factor. They just feel, you know, they're really into German hip hop. I know you're thinking who knew there was German hip hop, but it turns out there's lots. And uh, a lot of it is very micro local, like in the sense that it'll be, you know, different bands are identified with different zip codes with different neighborhoods in Berlin. It's all very spontaneous. You know, they announce it on Instagram or whatever, and then they all, show up in front of a playground and perform and stuff. So there's a whole very local hip hop thing happening here. And um, they're all really into it and they, they rap in German. So, which is to me, I didn't even know that that existed. So it's, it's wild. There's so much of it. So they, but they still, I just think most kids feel like they're from where they're from. You know, I think the harder thing I suppose is 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 allowing them to feel is is encouraging them anyway to feel like a part of your own culture if you're an immigrant mom. You know, my German is not great. I mean, it's like I always say I speak fluent pidgin. So, we definitely hit a moment in my mothering experience where my kids felt embarrassed at how I spoke in public and they would sort of try and speak for me because they felt like I sounded dumb in German. And I really thought like, now I'm truly like the immigrant mom. Like this is, I, I, and they would, my youngest would say, my mother can't speak German. She would say to people and I'd say, you know, I can speak German. She's like, give it not right. So just don't, 
you know, um, like at the supermarket or something. And um, so there is a funny way in which, you know, you try to, you want them to feel like a part of your culture, um, but they, which they do sort of, or they have a certain things that they associate with it, like food and stuff. But in the end, they feel like they come from where they are. So that that's their culture. Yeah, I think what you say about the immigrant mom is certainly really fascinating. You talk about your older children, my four-year-old, she's got a Liverpoolian accent and she corrects my pronunciation these days. So I'm like, I can't speak correctly anymore. <laughs> she's telling me, this is not how you say it. <laughs> so, yeah. so there's no winning with this, you know? And then you're like, I'm a highly educated person. And they're like, but you sound really dumb when you speak German. So there's, uh, yeah. I think they, I think the, I was very concerned when they were young that they wouldn't speak English, but the thing is, is I'm their mother. So they do speak English and that's not, that's less of a worry. Um, and then I think the larger problem for me has just been that American politics have been so awful that they have felt less and less identified with positive things about the United States. And that's something that I have no control over. And it's been a difficult time to be British American, I would say, the past few years in general. So they have, I feel, strayed away from sort of any idealization of my background. Um, but I guess these things ebb and flow. Yeah, no, I can identify with that. When I went to the UK, I was trying to detach myself from the whole Indian I kind of identity in a way because there were lots of awful things that I was escaping and I I I didn't really force it or push it on my older daughter and we kind of didn't talk so much about her Indianness that much um because I just felt like I can't associate with some of the things. But I think with my younger children now, I am so conscious they're growing up here and they are less likely to even even less likely to have any kind of association or affiliation with their Indian part of the heritage. So I'm constantly finding really little things for them to to, uh, to associate with it. As you said, food uh, is one of the things that if they eat something from India, I feel absolutely grateful in a way, <laughs> filled with gratitude or just or listen to some music in Hindi because we don't speak Hindi at home either. So yes, I think it, it can be as an immigrant parent a bit of a worry or sometimes not worry, I think, just a kind of an anxiety in the back of your mind that whether they will lose that part of the heritage. But as you know, as you say, children figure out who they are. And if we let them to, and if we allow them the space to, they will figure out where they belong and what part of identities that they feel affiliation with, and they will discover that. So I think that's that's beautiful. Um, so you have a daughter who's 16, and I, I find that generation really, really so hopeful hopeful and optimistic and and so open-minded about things and it's I've been my older daughter and her friends they're so I don't know just open-minded about things and just um, so full of hope for the future it's really really good how do you think do you think the world has changed between how when she was growing up as a child and now you have an 11 year old do you think the world has changed a little bit or in any way is it I mean, right now is a very complicated time to be a teenager simply because she was just gaining so much independence when the pandemic started. So 
I mean, imagine being 16 and spending all your time with your parents. It's just not, nobody wants that at all. I mean, I didn't ever see my parents when I was 16. I didn't even live with them since I went to boarding school. So it's, I think, very uh, stressful. I think at the same time, you know, if anybody has the capacity to rebuild the future, it's going to be this generation. I agree with you. I think they have, you know, they're, they're looser about a lot of things. In a funny way, I think our generation is this backlash to feminism generation. There was a lot of anxiety around marriage and around the balance of career and and family life and all this. I don't think that they'll have that in the same way. I think for them, it's they feel much freer to pursue their interests, to share labor with their partners, to... Um, to speak out on their own behalf. I mean, I'm continually amazed. I mean, I'm 50. And so it wasn't that long ago that I was young. And yet I'm really struck by the difference between women in their 20s now and, and what it was like when I was in my 20s, especially with regard to sexism in the workplace and just sort of speaking up for yourself. Um, I think it took me a long time to feel comfortable being in a position of influence, even though I always had a strong personality um, and and a very clear idea of what I wanted. But it was, there was always this kind of negotiating to make sure that men didn't feel threatened if, if you wanted something. And it was a very, it was a dance, you know, and I think that they see things much more equally. And by the way, it's not just that the girls have changed. It's also that the guys have changed, you know, they're also freer because I think it's also a burden to have to always be in charge as a man. Like, I think it's sort of the, the conflicts between the sexes are, are, are go both ways. And it's not as, as simple as, you know, men are dominant and women are weak. It's more like they're in this kind of agreement that goes back and forth. And, and I see with young people that they feel freer on both sides. So that's something that gives me hope. And um, I think they're very conscious of, obviously, you know, climate change, where they're going to inherit a just super screwed up world. So in so many ways, economically, um, just the really extreme differences between rich and poor in, in the world, in, in a lot of Western society, but also across the planet. And, you know, these are issues that they're going to have to deal with. And, uh, you know, they'll deal with differently than we than we have. No, yes. I mean, in some ways, it, it is a world that we are handing on to them, which is a bit of a worry that they will have to get right in a lot of ways. But but I, I, I'm just thinking that now um, in this era, we're relying, as you say, we're relying so much on social media. We're relying so much on technology. And I see these divides sometimes becoming stronger and stronger, at least on social media, if not on real life. And with your children, one almost a teen and the other one a teenager um how do you how does a parent make sure that they are not getting swayed by social media echo chambers how do we how do we make sure that we guide them i suppose in a way that they are conscious of the echo chambers on social media well we, we haven't my, my elder daughter seems to be pretty good at that and my younger daughter doesn't have social media yet but i would say that the, the, a larger concern or maybe related concern is sort of screen time in general. And obviously the whole COVID period has pushed that really over the edge because school's on screens and everything's on screens. And um, the expo the sort of 
the thing I really worry about is the lack of boredom, like the idea that they don't ever have nothing to do because they can always play a video game or, or look at what other people are doing on social media or TikTok or, you know, there is not, I was bored so much of my childhood. So that's why I read so much. And because I read so much, I had a really active imagination and I had to come up with things to do with that imagination. And it was, you know, just long summers of like rain, you know, and I mean, also being taken around where my parents were working, I, it was very rare that someone said to me, what do you want? <laughs> you know, it was like, this is what we're doing. And now you're here too. So like entertain yourself. And I remember that my mother used to always say boredom is a state of mind. So if you're bored, it's your own fault. And she, you know, we were, you know, we, as parents, I think our generation is so indulgent of our children that we, and I, I am definitely guilty of this, that we're constantly like trying to make sure they're okay and that they're entertained and that they feel safe and that they're interested. And we're, you know, we want to mitigate all risk. We want to, you know, make sure that they feel uh, protected. So there's, there's a lot of things that we're probably doing wrong, uh, but I suppose the best we can hope for is that they, they sort of resist, uh, you know, because they don't need to resist the same things that we need to resist. You know, they're not resisting sort of conservative expectations of, you know, we're not imposing those things on them, you know, in the same way that, that previous generations might have on children. So that, but the thing they might resist ultimately is the coddling because, you know, I feel like our generation obsesses about being parents. And so are we doing the right thing? Are we not doing the right thing? And as a result, our kids at some point might be like, back off. <laughs> um, I mean, you've been through it since you have an adult child already. I don't know if that happened. Absolutely. It did happen. Yes. And I think those anxieties about it being a parent is because perhaps of our generation of of trying to balance career and, and motherhood or parenthood and just feeling guilt on all sides is this notion of guilt that's always there, whether we're doing it right, whether we're being perfect, whether being a yeah, good parent, I suppose, a good mother is always the because I'm taking some time away and focusing on myself or my work, I want to make sure that I'm not neglecting my child. Maybe sometimes I think that that comes into play. But I suppose um, I was also thinking about how as a white parent, what do you feel? How do you feel? Um, it feels like your children are absolutely kind of really clued on and, and really in, immersed in a very diverse multicultural environment and really secure with their sense of identity. How do white parents still, how can they make sure that their children become good allies? Because I think that's one of the things that I talk to many parents about that they have anxieties and worries about. How do they make sure that their parent, children are not just non-racist or anti-racist, but that they're good allies and they're good supporters as well? Well, one thing I think is really important, and it's really simple, and and you know, actually, Charmaine Lovegrove, our our friend we have in common, she really pointed this out in a TED talk she did a couple of years ago uh, in London, which is that basically we have to live together. I mean, it's it's actually that simple. Your children should not be growing up only with people who look like themselves, and that goes for not not just at school but also in your friendship circle. And I'm amazed by how many people who just don't really know people who are different from themselves. I don't even, I find that hard to believe given that we're, we're talking about urban people, right? We live in cities. Cities are full of all kinds of people. 
So why are we only seeing people who look like ourselves? And I think these are choices that you make from the beginning as a parent, but also as a person, you know, and it's funny in my work, you know, I'm the person who hires people for writer's rooms and for productions. And I think it's extremely important not to work in an echo chamber, but I also think it's really important not to live in an echo chamber. And I think these are choices that we make in terms of exposure and also in terms of challenging our own ideas of what's, what the world looks like, um, both in the work, of course, but also just in normal life and, and in child rearing and, and in the children's exposure to, to reality, you know, and, um, so certainly, you know, one thing Charmaine pointed out in that TED talk was just that most white people have no friends of color. And whereas people of color who become in higher levels of education in the white world, or in the, and now again, I'm talking about the global north, um, have to assimilate to white culture. You know, there isn't, there isn't the equivalent of, let's say, you know, inclusion going the other direction. And that that is that there there is not enough of an effort on the part of white people to surround themselves with people who are different from themselves and i think that she's absolutely right so it's the gift that we can give our children not to limit their view of the world and your view of the world really begins at home and it begins with who you're having dinner with and who you're playing with on the playground yes so brilliant i think it's so important because we know that children form stereotypes and these kind of assumptions and generalizations from what we see around them in media books, but primarily from how their parents react to other people or the kind of people associate or affiliate with, the, what they talk about, these implicit cues we give out to our children as well. Or maybe it just happens to them, but that's also a pity. And, and there is something that they can do about that. It's sort of like people always ask me, it's funny, I can give you like a metaphor for this. People often ask me with unorthodox, why, if it was by design that so many women were in charge of different departments and, or whether it was because it was like so-called female subject matter. And that always really annoys me because I feel like, well, if do you ask male directors or showrunners, white male, they're almost exclusively white men. Um, you know, was there something that really gave this a special white male flavor? Like, and that's why you hired only white guys to work on this project. I mean, nobody ever asks that question, right? They only ask that question if it's the other way around. So, you know, they might ask a black director, did you hire a black, you know, a, a more black, it has to be a conscious decision to have hired so many people of color on a set or so many women on a, in a set. And I feel like, whereas if everyone is a white guy, then that's just like, oh yeah, that wasn't a conscious decision, but that's also a decision, you know? So I feel like they, that has to be held accountable as well. And, um, and I think that that's just true in your own life. Like, so I think it's something I think about a lot in my work and, um, and I guess in, in a sense with my children, it, it comes, you know, the parenting is part of the same idea. And my husband as well, you know, I would say, both of us, we come from very different backgrounds. Uh, we're both white, but we don't have anything else in common in terms of our uh, family backgrounds. So we certainly, even between us, have all kinds of, you know, debates or, or discussions about culture. So there's, um, yeah, it begins at home. Yeah. I, I And I was talking with another guest earlier on in the podcast about how 
my husband, as I said, is white and he's had to address a lot of these aspects of white male privilege, um, which he just took for granted, especially now we are bringing up two small children together. So we have to align some of our parenting philosophies. And for me, some of the things are more important than others. Some battles are really crucial, while others I can let go. I don't really care. And I think that unlearning has to happen and people have to be ready to do that sometimes as well, um, to align these kind of parenting philosophies. But uh, talking about privilege, um, I, I, we were talking about how we are bringing up our children in this kind of way we are focusing so much on our children the they have a certain amount of privileges no matter where they come from or what their backgrounds how do you um in on what in your opinion how do we talk to our children about privileges because i think it is a tricky conversation you don't want them to feel like they they a sense of guilt about carrying some of the privileges or a sense of kind of victimhood which i'm completely against so how do you think we could strike these conversations about privilege with our children, especially as they're growing older? I think it's very difficult. I mean, I think that the, that that's, it's the, the inequalities in our society are very hard to explain when there's so much wealth on earth. You know, I remember we, we were shooting in South Africa a couple of years ago and the kids were living there with us and it got dark very early. We always went home at the end of the day. So we had not uh, been outside yet when it was dark out, like not outside the building we were staying in. And then one night we came home at like 11 o'clock at night and outside of our building, there were lots of homeless people sleeping on in cardboard boxes in front of the building. And we hadn't seen that before because we'd always been inside by the time people went to sleep. And the kids were so upset, like they had no idea. And they wanted to make sandwiches and bring them downstairs. And like, they they just, they had not seen that because that they, they we just don't have that in the same way here. And um, it was so hard to explain, uh, you know, how do we explain this? You know, South Africa is also a very rich country. It's, it is, it's this kind of Inst I'll call it institutionalized poverty. <laughs> you know, we talk about institutionalized racism, but institutionalized poverty is also really difficult. Of course, the two things go hand in hand in many cases, including South Africa, but there's, there is, it, it's a lot to explain to kids and they're, they're growing up in very privileged systems. Um, you know, in this case with two parents who love them and so forth as well, those are also privileges, but I'm talking about economics. I think it's very hard to explain. And, you know, in America, I think there's this sense that many people feel they don't have enough and they certainly don't have enough to share. Even at very high levels economically, people feel kind of they'll never have enough because there's always people who are so much richer than they are. And I think that's different in Germany. Like one thing about living in a social democracy where you pay really high levels of income tax but you also see that tax spent properly so that it does even things out. I think that that's like a, a very good thing for them to see. And, and for in the case of my children, because they've uh, been in the United States, you know, they, especially in New York, they're, as they get older, they're keenly aware of the fact that America is a terribly unequal society and that no one's really doing anything about it. And, uh, and that, 
in Germany, while we still have problems, it's it's just there's much greater effort being made to level the playing field for yeah for 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 all people and and to kind of provide for the weakest among us. So that's something. As Bella is older, you know, she's my elder daughter is now sixteen. She's very aware of that, and she's very interested in human rights and. Um, so she, I think that she thinks a lot about that stuff. And she, the the more she wakes up to what's happening in the world, um, you know, and the, she, the more she understands that there's different ways to deal with it, and uh, and that certainly Western nations, and that that have the the resources, she feels, as I feel, ha, have an obligation to to redistribute wealth in some way that's. Um, that, that brings up the bottom. Yes, I mean, yes, these conversations around privilege and inequalities can be so tricky. I remember growing up and we didn't have much at all. We lived in these small two-room rented apartments, but I always, always remember my parents, my mother especially always told me, there's always somebody worse off than you. So you need to look at them rather than <laughs> rather than people who are richer or people who have more. And, indeed it, and I think I grew up with that sense that I have enough and that I need to share out what I have. And and I, I try to do that even while we provide a very privileged upbringing to my daughter. Um, I tried to involve in, a, in like homeless shelters from the age of 16 or 15. We went and like cooked on Christmas days and boxing days on homeless shelters. And she served food and she listened to stories. And that made her really aware of the fact that of these severe kind of inequalities that exist and how easy it is for any of us to fall over the line, you know, it's not because people are destined to be poor or people are destined or born that way. It's it's so easy for any of us to 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 have little or less than what we have. And I think the notion of privilege is something that people sometimes resist, as you say, to talk about. They're reluctant to talk about that because sometimes people feel like if you talk about privilege, it might feel like we don't have any barriers or obstructions in our path. But I suppose these kind of intersectionality of privilege, of education, of caste, of class, of race, of gender is something that every child or every adult can be aware of, I think. And, and it's our responsibility as parents to have these conversations. But thank you so much, Anna. I'm, just as we wrap up, I, I wonder if you had any recommendations of books for, for other parents? Well, you might find uh, the book that my parents wrote. <laughs> my parents are psychological anthropologists. Uh, their names are Bob and Sarah Levine, and uh, they recently published a book that was a reader. It's called um, Child Care and Culture. If you Google them, there's a lot of interesting books, um, Childhood Socialization. I always tease them that all of their books are called what they're about. Like they, These are academic books, of course, but they did a more mainstream book. I'm trying to remember the exact title. I'm looking at it. Looking for it on the shelf. Oh, yes, of course. It's called Do Parents Matter? Oh, wow. That sounds so they, they made a kind of, that was the first book that they wrote that was um, that was for sort of normal readers, like not academic. And it was a, it sort of brought a lot of their, their research together. So it's called Do Parents Matter? And it's by Bob and Sarah Levine. So that might be fun uh, for some of your listeners to, to read. Absolutely. I'm going to check it out. That sounds absolutely fascinating. And thank you so much, Anna. Once again, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you.
Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.